0: Before I pray and ask for God's help, let me thank you as a church and Pastor Norm and Pastor Matt in particular for being such gracious hosts to us and meeting every need that uh, we uh, and the Desiring God team have had. You need to know that I don't take for granted that you exist, that you exist as believers in Jesus that you exist as a church, that you exist in downtown Vancouver. These are astonishing things. To be a Christian is amazing. There was an old man at my church named Dr. Wyden, and one of the first things I did as a brand-new pastor in 1980 was go visit him as he was dying. And he looked up at me and said, Pastor John, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. I'll never forget that. It's about the last thing I heard him say. Then it is. So I don't take for granted that I'm standing here in front of you as a saved sinner or that I'm looking out on hundreds of saved sinners. That's amazing. So thank you for inviting us and letting us be here. Father, I ask now that as we embrace this moment together, as amazing as it is, you would do amazing things through your holy, inspired, needed word. Help me to speak in a way that is faithful to the scriptures and help my heart and my mind to be emotionally in sync with the nature of the truth that is spoken and grant ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive and minds that can track with me as I try to track with your word. So come, I pray, and do that exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that I can ask or think. Through Christ I pray. Amen. So my title is the pain of the world and the purposes of God. And my question that I hope to answer from the Bible is why do we have a world like the one we have which is so permeated by pain? Last week, I wasn't told what to speak on, and so last week as I was thinking and praying about what to talk about, there were a cluster of things in my life and in the news and in my own preparations that coalesced to bring me to this topic and this message. One is that Noel and I, my wife and I, are watching a documentary based on a best-selling book that many of you have heard of, I'm sure. Entitled Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies. And it's a history of cancer, its horrors, and the battle against it. And it's a battle we are not winning. 7.2 million people die of cancer in the world every year, and in America, it's been steady for years. About 600,000 people die of cancer every year, just behind heart disease, and sometimes vying for first place. And we're watching these videos, that's on my mind. A disease that is unique in its adaptability to evade, evade our efforts to kill it. Another current reality is that I was preparing for 1 Peter for the last two days, that I taught for the last two days, and 1 Peter is permeated with suffering more than any other New Testament book. And so I had that on my mind, the suffering of 1 Peter. And then, as you can imagine, I had on my mind the ISIS killing last Monday of the couple dozen Ethiopian believers, and before that the Egyptian believers, and after that the 12 Christians that were thrown overboard in the Mediterranean Sea, not to mention the 900 people from North Africa who were trying to get to Europe who drowned in the last several weeks from the capsizing of their boats. And then I didn't anticipate that there would be an earthquake that would kill at least 2,400 people, and that will probably double over the next several days. And as we speak, people perhaps are lying alive under rubble, wondering, will anybody reach me? And so that cluster of contemporary realities drew me to speak on this the, the world of pain and the purposes of God. In 1995, we entered, I was 15 years into my 33-year pastorate, and entered the biggest crisis that we'd ever faced as a church. 230 people had walked away. They were angry at me. Um, We had disciplined a staff member. They didn't like the way it went down. Uh, I had opposed Four um, $450,000 pipe organ that I didn't think was God's will for us and hundreds of people did and, and it was the worst time in my ministry and the worst time in the church and I didn't know, I was 49 years old and, and I thought, I don't know whether there's a future here for me or what will become of this church. One of the things we did was we formed a group of 23 people, about three or four staff members, and then, and then lay people, and we met for a year and a half, and we simply prayed and studied, who are we? What's happened? Is there a future? What will it be? What will it look like? During that time, they sent me away to a, a little monastery over in St. Paul, 10 miles away, and said, go away pray, listen to God, and bring us a vision for the church, and we'll interact with it. We know you're not God, and uh, in, you're not infallible, but you're our leader. Go, go hear from God as best you can, and, and then we will, we will refine what He gives you. And one of the things I believe God gave me was a vision for my life, and, and when I brought it back, it was a one-sentence vision, still is the vision. I asked, could this be the vision statement of the church as well? And it became the vision statement of the church. If you walked into Bethlehem today, downtown, it would be on the wall. If you walked into the north campus, it would be on the wall. We don't have a south campus building. We rent that, so they won't let us put things on the wall there. And that sentence goes like this. I, now I would say we, and so does Desiring God, so does Bethlehem College and Seminary. We exist to spread, very operative word, to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples with an S, through Jesus Christ. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. And when We embraced that. We did not mean we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things except earthquakes, supremacy of God in all things except cancer, supremacy of God in all things except babies born with profound disabilities. We didn't mean that. We meant all things. No exceptions. So I come to you with that banner flying over my life to this day. We Christians are very complex emotional people if we have our eyes open and our hearts are in tune with the Word of God. Because the world is a complex place. The world, is a, is a beautiful place and a horrible place. So you walk outside right now, it's beautiful. Isn't it? It's beautiful. And in Nepal, somebody is groaning under rubble, just about to die of thirst. This is a horrible place and a beautiful place. And inside us, we who love people and are instructed by Jesus Christ how to be, we hear the words, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep, and there is a wedding and a funeral every day at the same time all over the world, and if, you, if you're in a church this size, you always know somebody weeping, and you always know somebody on tiptoe happiness. Which means that Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6 is true, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And you don't have to be very old in the Lord to know that's true and possible. When, my, when I got that phone call that every 28-year-old dreads, or 15-year-old, or 40-year-old, that mom was killed in a, in a car accident, my mother. And I hung up and said to my wife and my two-year-old, who looked up at me and said, Daddy's sad. And I went back to the room and knelt down, cried for two hours. In that moment, longest crying I've ever done in my life, in that, in that hours, those hours, I was saying, thank you that I had her for 28 years. Thank you that she was a Christian. Thank you that she didn't suffer long. Thank you that my dad is alive. I don't know if he'll be alive when I get there, but thank you for what a great mom she was. You've been so good to me. I know this is possible. You may not have lived long enough to taste it, but it is possible to be simultaneously profoundly sad and profoundly happy simultaneously not sequentially simultaneously this is possible and how can it not be the case so we Christians are complicated people we should not think of all these calamities like you could add your personal calamity to my list We shouldn't think of those as exceptional, like occasional. Occasionally there's a calamity. (gasps) Are you kidding me? 50 million people die in the world every year. 5,707 people die every hour 95 every minute breathe in breathe out four people have died calamities are not exceptional they're just a breaking of the surface of the ocean of sorrow So we notice them a little more than what's going on right now in Vancouver as we speak, in hospitals, in nursing homes, in hospice care. It is utterly naive to think that there are good times and bad times. Sequentially, there are good times and there are bad times always, all the time, simultaneously. And if you walk through the world with a heart ready to weep with those who weep, ready to rejoice with those who rejoice, you will be a very strange and wonderful person. So I want to, I want to ask, why, are, why do we have a world like this? Why so much pain? Why so much Conflict? Why so much suffering? Why so much death? It is a horrible place. It is a conveyor belt of corpses. Millions of people right now are weeping their eyes out over the sorrows in their lives as we speak. Why such a world? Now, before I go to the Bible and try to give you pointers for you to think about, let me Let me tell you something that I think, I found very shocking when I realized it. God has ordained in his mercy that sometimes very um, unbelieving people wake up to his reality because of pain, not because of his absence. For example, suppose you're a professor in a university, and you've absorbed a postmodern mindset that playfully says, what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me, and what's wrong for you is wrong for you, and what's wrong for me is wrong for me, and we don't impose. Our morality on each other. There is no one absolute right and wrong, good and bad, beautiful and ugly that gets squashed down onto our own perceptions and preferences. That's just rampant, right? That's just rampant and it is playful and it is going to come to an end when that professor walks into a real, living, holocaust himself. So, whatever the situation is, he walks into an experience of six million Jewish people murdered or 60 million under the Stalinist regime starved and killed in the gulags, or we're celebrating a hundred years this year since the Armenian genocide of the Turkish people slaughtering a million and a half Armenians between Turkey and Syria in 1915. You walk into that, As a professor who's been playing word games on tenure with students, fitting them to be destroyed by the world in which they live with this absolute nonsense, that what's right for you is right for you, what's wrong for me is wrong for me, and suddenly he is so confronted by an evil, he finds welling up out of his heart a statement he thought would never come, that is evil. And suddenly he, he realizes what he just said. He does not mean, well, if you don't think it's evil, you don't have to think it's evil. You can think it's good. He has just woken up from a dream world, an academic dream world. And he knows he has made a pronouncement of absolute significance. That's evil. That's evil, and he knows. He's a professor. He knows and he realizes, I have just broken every rule in my philosophy, and I cannot deny what I am saying. That's evil, And I don't mean it's the result of chemical synapses popping in my evolutionary primate brain. I mean, it's real. I mean, it has significance. I mean, it is a moral reality. It holds for everybody. This is not part of what I was thinking. This is evil. And he knows pronouncements like that are meaningless unless... There's an absolute, and where do they come from? They come from God or nowhere. You live a life of meaninglessness. You're a bag of chemicals and electrical impulses, just moving in a kind of evolutionary movement of time and chance with no significance to your moral judgments whatsoever unless God is. It happens. In other words, it it happens that in the midst of evil, evil becomes the very moment and means by which a person can awaken to the fact that we're not playing games. We're not just stuff. It is a wonderful thing that God has mercy like that in the midst of such great evils. So here we are at my question, why such a world? So what I'd like to do is uh, give from the Bible two answers that are wrong, the Bible says they're wrong, and four answers that I think the Bible says are right, okay? And we are biting off the biggest problem in the world in the next 20 minutes or so. And so I I just don't mean to claim to have the last answer with every strand neatly woven into a fabric of perfect knowledge. I don't mean that. I want to offer you glimpses of answers that are really here, I believe. You can live by these and ask you to go home and consider whether these things are so. Like good Bereans in the chapter uh, chapter 17 of Acts. So here's my first wrong answer. The reason this world exists with its calamities and conflicts and suffering and death is because God is not in control. I've already rejected that there's no God. I'm just saying, answer number two that's wrong, he's not in control. He's looking down, and it's wheeling out of control. And there's nothing he can do about it. That's not a true answer. Some people opt for that answer. It, biblically, it won't hold. For reasons like this, Matthew 10.29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? That's a first century way of looking for the most random and insignificant event in the world and claiming God governs it. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of those sparrows in the darkest Forests of Papua New Guinea falls dead, without God deciding that that happened. Or Matthew 8:27, even the winds and the sea obey Him. Every time you hear of a hurricane or a tsunami. and you know it's been wind plus sea plus 240,000 people dead 2006 you got a choice either that statement is false or God is in control the wind and the sea obey him If he sees the tsunami coming he can say stop right there in the middle of the Indian Ocean stop and it will stop it will stop he's God or not. So that, that's not an answer that will work. God can't stop tsunamis. That's not God. Or Proverbs 1633. The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Paraphrase. In Las Vegas, every dice is thrown, the numbers on the top are always decided by God. I believe that. Totally, because that's what it says. Lamentations 3.37, who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? And on and on and on. I've got other texts here. In other words, the Bible teaches that God is in meticulous, total, governing control of the world. Nothing lies outside the rule of God. Whatever he permits or causes, he permits and causes by design. When you're an infinitely wise God and an infinitely powerful God, to use the word permit is to say permit by plan, permit by design. Because you could stop it, you can add it, you know everything that led to it, you know everything that will come from it. So answer number one, God is not in control, is a false answer or you, you must reject this book. Second false answer, God is evil. There is a malevolent deity in the world. The Bible says, this, this is the message we have heard from Him, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I was reading in my devotions yesterday morning and I read Psalm 93 which ends with a word to old people and I am one of those now and so I love these words I I love it when the Bible uh, talks to me as an old man and it said the old will remain green and bear fruit in the temple of God. And they will say to the generation, the Lord is upright. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. (laughs) So here you are, young people, most of you. (laughs) And here I am, old John Piper. And you know what I have to say to you? God is upright. And never sins, never has the slightest dark inclination in his mind whatsoever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The answer to why the world is the way it is is not because God is evil. I rule that one out because of what the Bible says about God. So those are the two wrong answers, and here are four answers that I think are true. They go together. I ask you to consider them as a whole, and I'll pass over them fairly quickly, and they are weighty, and some of you have never heard anything like this before in your life. Some of you have. So take a deep breath take them home, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Number one, the reason these calamities, this world exists is because God planned a history of redemption before the world existed, and then according to that plan, Permitted sin to enter the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve, so that then there could be a history of merciful redemption from sin. Let me read you a text, see if you think this follows from this text. 2 Timothy 1 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God gave us grace In Christ Jesus, in other words, this is blood bought, grace undeserved, planned before the foundation of the world through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in order to have a world in which that comes true there had to be sin. And so God ordained that there be sin. It is not sin to will that sin be. That's a heavy statement. It is not sin for God to will that sin happened. I'll read it again. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, because of His grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So here we are in the 21st century, Receiving by faith grace through Jesus Christ and His work on the cross because God, billions of years ago, in eternity, before there was a universe, gave it to us in Christ, Will that we have it in Christ. That's the first reason why this world exists as it exists. Second, The reason the calamities and conflicts of the world exist is because God subjected the natural world to futility. This is the part that Pastor Norm read earlier, and I'll read it again in just a minute. God put the natural world under a curse so that the physical horrors... Of that curse, of that futility, of that corruption, the physical horrors, disease, and death would become a vivid picture, parable, of the horrors of moral evil, sin. In other words, natural evil exists in the world as a signpost, a signpost, a parable of the horrors of moral evil. Now before I read the text, I want you to picture what I'm I'm saying in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, perfect, sinless. The world, perfect, no death. Everything is perfect. And they eat fruit forbidden, and God strikes the world with a curse in the natural world. Now, in his sin, Adam didn't hit Eve. There's no domestic abuse in the Garden of Eden. He didn't hit her, and God said, You hit her, I'm hitting you. No, Adam hit God. And he hit him not with his fist, he hit him with his heart. I don't trust you anymore to provide the best life. I think I know the best life. I reject your love. I reject your wisdom. I reject you, and I vote for me, and I will do it my way, that was a blow to the face of God which merited thousands of years of horrible physical misery in the world. Now, most people who don't have any sense of the majesty and the infinite worth of the holiness of God would say that was an overreaction it was not an overreaction and you can either live with your smarts that it was an overreaction, or you can, de- you can spend the rest of your life trying to bring your soul into sync with a God that majestic, that holy, that great, that one insult to that God of infinite proportions is worthy of this world's punishment. Because that's what it says happened. I'll read it now. This is Romans 8. 18 to 21. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For, here it comes, the creation was subjected to futility. That's what we're seeing in Nepal. That's what we're seeing in in the loss of eyesight, the loss of of ears and, and cancer The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, the creation didn't say, oh, curse me, God. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, that's not Satan, and it's not Adam. Because the next phrase says, because of him who subjected it in hope. Satan didn't subject this world in hope. Adam didn't subject this world in hope. God subjected it in hope, and it keeps going. Because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's coming, and we say, hasten the day, O God. So, when Adam and Eve sinned morally, the world was touched physically. It's remarkable, isn't it, that we punish moral wrongs with physical punishments. We do. If my child, one of my sons, sassed his mother, his behind would get a swat. You will not talk to your mother that way. Well, what his behind didn't do it. <laughs> his heart did it. And that's the way God has handled the world. Adam insulted God in a way of infinite proportions because he's an infinite God. And God subjected the physical world to futility. That's the second answer for why the world is the way it is. Third, the reason this world of calamity, conflict, misery, suffering, and death exists is so that the followers of Jesus Christ or in the Old Testament, the followers of Yahweh, God of Israel, would be able to experience and display the the profound God-honoring truth that Christ is more precious to us than everything we could lose in this world. A world of loss exists so that you and I, by not murmuring or complaining or getting angry at God, but rather resting in Him and trusting in Him, could show the world and testify to our own consciences that God is more precious to us than everything that we just lost. That's why the loss exists. I'll read the verse from which I get that. This is Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ. All loss is meant to show In the heart of believers, that Christ is more precious than what is lost. You've got two options every time you experience a loss. You can hate God or you can hate sin. Because all loss entered the world through sin and is intended to portray the horrors of sin. My wife and I were married in 1968, December. I was 22 and already the Lord was showing me as I was making the transition from college to seminary, the pain of the world. Not sure why I was just so burdened and sensitive. So I, 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 I anticipated the exquisite pleasures of sex in marriage. Who wouldn't? And I felt the horrors of disease and the Vietnam War fiasco. Fifty thousand of my friends. So, in our wedding, the text that my dad I asked to read, who did our wedding, was Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 following that go like this Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We've been married 46 years, and it's been very hard. Still is for reasons you don't need to know. (laughs) Some of which I'd be happy to tell you, others I would not be happy to tell you. And I'm so thankful that the Lord put that foundation under us. I don't believe in walking away from a spouse for any reason. Though the fig tree should not blossom, no fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, The fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stall. That means you're dead. There's nothing to eat. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's why famine exists, among other reasons. So that Christians who are swept away in the famine will bear witness, God is better than food. God is all satisfying to my soul as I die of starvation. Yes, He is. And what a tribute you pay to Him when that happens. Murmuring is a great sin. Philippians 2.15 says, Do all things without murmuring, that you may shine like lights in a dark and crooked generation and show yourself to be pure and blameless sons of God. Oh, how many times have I failed, even in the last 24 hours. I'm a born murmurer. Murmur, murmur, murmur. I hate myself when I murmur, because it's a statement that God is not better than what you're murmuring about. So that's the third reason. One more. This is the most important, I think, one that the world knows nothing about except right now I'm going to tell them finally this world exists with its pain, with its sorrow with its death to make a place for Jesus Christ the son of God to suffer and die if a world like this didn't exist Jesus would have no place to suffer and die If there were no suffering, Jesus couldn't suffer. If there were no death, Jesus couldn't die. Put it another way, the reason there is terror is so that Christ could be terrorized. The reason there is trouble is so that Christ could be troubled. The reason there is pain is so that Christ could feel pain. This world became what it is so that The Son of God could enter it and feel all of it. Therefore, you should never feel that God is somehow out there, distant, far away, toying with this creation. He made the horrors to enter the horrors. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you believe, let me say it again, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, his son, died for us. He showed his love through the death of his son. He showed his love through the death of his son. Do you believe that love could be shown another way? That love could be shown another way. It couldn't. And he meant for it to be shown. Listen to these words from Acts chapter 4. Truly in this city, this is being prayed by the saints after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Do you hear what that says? Herod, who mocked him, put a purple robe on him, scorned him, Pilate who expediently washed his hands and said, I find no fault in him, but mm, my job's at stake, and so kill him, crucify him, put him through the worst tortures imaginable. The Gentiles, that's the soldiers, they were driving the nails, pushing the sword in the side. The Jewish people, crucify him, crucify him. Those four things, this text says, I'll read it again. Herod, Pontius Pilate, The Gentiles and the peoples of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your plan and your hand had predestined to take place. Christ did not die by accident. Oh, just a fluke of history, just a turning of Roman affairs, just a mob violence. This had been planned since before the foundation of the world. This is the climax of the reason for existence. The Son of God bearing all the suffering of the world in order to lift sin from all who would trust Him. Bring them into everlasting reward and joy exquisitely on a new heavens and a new earth. Glorifying God for His wisdom and grace and love That's the reason this world exists the way it exists. So, let me close like this. In my church, um, I still affectionately call it my church. I've been the pastor for two years. Um, I uh, I feel I love her. There were a, 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 a thousand young women. There were about 5,000 folks. And a lot of young people, like here, right? And we, we grew up together. I was there for 33 years, and young people would come. And When you have a lot of young people together, they tend to fall in love, and they get married, and they have babies. And those babies die more than you would like. And some of them are born with profound disabilities, like Michael. Thinking of Michael. And you got moms, therefore, who've just lost their babies or have now their whole lives changed because they will be caring for this child till they're dead. And I just want to bear witness to you, young people, I would welcome you to come to this church and interview any of them. Like Patty, who you can't interview because she died of breast cancer. And the first crisis was that Eric, her one-year-old, died in her arms. And I went to the hospital. She's sitting there holding Eric. He's, he looks like he's made out of ivory. He's dead. Sitting in his mother's arms. She just looks at me. And then I buried her about. 15 years later, four kids, young kids, and she dies. It was a horrible death, in fact. Patty was a rock. Patty believed every word of what I said. With her bald head and her cap, she made a video of about 15 minutes, 13 minutes. We showed it at a, at a service telling the people to trust God before she died. So I'm inviting you work through this if it, if it sounds problematical God could shake this city not just Nepal half these buildings could go down at 10 a.m. on Monday morning and a hundred thousand people be dead do you have a vision of God that would be able to handle that that's my question which might be easier to handle than if one of your children died or if you had a child with a profound disability. I am inviting you to embrace Jesus Christ as the one for whom through whom and to whom all things exist. And he came to share this suffering. He came to bear this pain. He came to taste every test and every temptation that we have known, take it to the cross, die in our place, so that by faith alone we could have all our sins forgiven, have eternal life, and have a destiny on a new heavens and a new earth where that curse will finally be lifted so Father I pray now as we worship again as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember his death that that death will be more precious to us than ever, more majestic than ever, more historically significant than ever, and that our small views of yourself and your Christ would be replaced by big, long views that can handle big, long calamities. Come, I pray, and rest upon us and bring us into conformity. With Christ, in his name I pray, amen.